Neither the United States of America nor the world community of nations can tolerate deliberate deception. But I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are corrupt. I did not trade arms for hostages. Welcome to Revealed, putting public records in the public eye. I'm your host, Hannah Markley, and I'm here to tell the stories that we found out the hard way through public records and FOIA requests. I'm really excited about this episode because I think it addresses a really important topical question for the moment we're in in history. It asks about holding government scientists to the same standard that we hold private scientists, being able to engage in that process that everyone's heard about called peer review. The USGS tried to argue that they were somehow different from other scientists and didn't have to disclose the data that they used to reach conclusions when they published them. But as you'll see, the people who suffered because of the decisions they reached weren't willing to just accept the science that they published without reviewing it, which turned out to be a really important case because it touched on what government agencies can hide in general. We're talking to Dr. Anne Lahure, a geochemist with a big task. A small trade association called the Pavement Coatings Technology Council hired Dr. Lahure to review United States Geological Survey findings that had surprised the industry. Back in the mid-2000s, the United States Geological Survey, or USGS, had made a finding that pavement coatings, essentially a sealant on parking lots, were damaging to the environment. But many other environmental agencies had reviewed the coating and found that it was fine. Dr. Lahuri did her postdoc at the USGS and understood the process there. So the Pavement Coatings Technology Council turned to her for help. Okay. The USGS is the US Geological Survey. I know quite a bit about it because I was a graduate student intern there and they co-sponsored my postdoc as well. They were founded right after the Civil War, essentially, to help develop the West. So mining and coal and oil and all those kind of natural resources. And they mapped the United States. And today, most people think of them. If you had a volcano break out in your backyard, who are you going to call? You're going to call the USGS. They're a non-regulatory agency. They are purely a science agency, allegedly. And what we're going to talk about here today is a case that it falls into the category of what can be defined as advocacy research. And that is research designed with an outcome in mind, as opposed to research which you do to see what the outcome is going to be. So you, de- you decide what the conclusion is before you do the research and you uh, design it that way. She's saying it in a very calm, sort of dry way, but if you think about it, this is a really serious accusation that Anne is making. She's saying that a government-sponsored science group is choosing winners and losers in the research they conduct, but there's a lot of history here that makes her statement pretty compelling. There's a couple of types of coatings that are used on pavements, mostly parking lots, and uh, driveways and non-high-speed roadways, low-speed roadways. And there's two types of these materials of the pavement coatings that are most common. And one is coal tar-based, and the other is asphalt-based. 
And the coal tar based material is the most popular because it's the most effective. And can you think of anything with a more unfortunate name than coal tar? Ooh, coal, ooh, tar, ooh. <laughs> Let's get rid of it. Let's say you're the city of Austin, Texas, and you went to the Texas Department of Environmental Quality and you said, hey, we think we have a problem and we think that we want to do something about it. We want to ban a product. And so what we're talking about here is we call this in the industry, it's called refined tar-based pavement sealant. RTS is, is the acronym we use. So they thought, okay, that the RTS was generating runoff of, of it, and the chemicals that were appearing were a, a class of compounds called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. PAHs. What you're looking for is problematic levels because when you're talking about something like PAHs, which occurs naturally in the environment as well as as the result of human activity, you know it, it's there, it's everywhere. For example, your PAHs. The reason that your toast in the morning has a dark uh, hue to it—that's PAHs that you're making. Anytime that you apply heat to organic material, you make PAHs. The reason your barbecue tastes so great, whether it's meat or vegetables or fish, is because of that dark stuff, which is all pH. It's not all pHs, but it's got a lot of pHs. So the city of Austin thought that there was a problem with coal tar sealant in their community. And they set out to ask all the right people if that was the case. First, the city of Austin asked the Texas Department of Environmental Quality what they thought. And Texas DEQ did a couple of studies and they came back and they said, you don't have a problem. So then you take your issue to the Texas Department of Health. The Texas Department of Health made use of a program with, within the Centers for Disease Control. There's a, a agency called ATSDR, Agency for Toxic Substance and Disease Registry. And if you think that you have an outbreak of a, of a particular disease in your area, or you think that you have an environmental problem, you can call up ATSDR and they will do what they call a public health assessment. So that's what Texas Department of Health did. They brought in ATSDR and they did a public health assessment. And you should read it. In their report, they did an executive summary, as there's always is in reports, and they used Boldface type, they used italics to say, you do not have a problem. So the city of Austin said, well, we still think we have a problem. So they went to EPA, US EPA region six. And EPA region six, they reviewed all of the material they'd been sent from the Texas DEQ studies, the normal monitoring the city of Austin does, the public health assessment that ATSDR did, and at EPA Region 6 wrote them a nice little letter that said, you do not have a problem. Well, then the city of Austin found out that they had a local office of the USGS NACWA program right there in the city of Austin. And they said, hey, you know, we think we have a problem. And the USGS people in the local office said, hey, 
Yeah, we can make that a problem for you. We can demonstrate that. <laughs> so they had an outcome in mind. And I'm saying this, I'm laughing about it, but this is all documented. You know, this is all documented. And uh, the reports are all available and, and the like. So the city of Austin shops around until they find a reputable agency that will say that there is a problem with coal tar sealant creating PAHs in the Austin area. And they get that published. Specifically, they publish a paper that compares runoff from known coal tar sealant to water sources in the area and claim that the two different waters from the runoff and the Austin area are so alike that they have to mean that any PAHs in the local water supply came from the coal tar sealant. And then many, many other cities and locations across the country start to take up the banner and ban coal tar sealant or RTS in their own communities. In 2005, the USGS, these folks who took on this task, the the Austin branch of the NACWA program, published a paper. And on the basis of that paper, right after it was published, the city of Austin banned the, the product, the use, the sale and use of the product in the city of Austin. That was kind of like a, a match. It struck a, a spark because all of a sudden environmental activists everywhere said, oh, look at that. Here's, a, here's something that we can work on and we can get this banned in our communities too. Now, I wasn't involved at this time, you know, the, and the industry was, didn't know what had happened to them. After this first paper, the USGS team wrote three more papers. The first one just tried to reproduce the results of the study that started it all. But that didn't work out so well. In fact, it showed totally different results. So they did two more studies using two different types of data gathering. The, the same USGS team had published three additional papers, all pointing fingers at RTS. One of those papers, essentially, they weren't able to reproduce their own result. So they tried a different tact and they went to modeling, okay? And uh, so that paper, the modeling paper was published in 2010. And then a fourth paper, which involved household dust was published around that same time, 2010. The industry was blindsided, but they also didn't really have tools to fight back. They hadn't officially organized into a trade association yet, and although they'd worked together in some areas, they weren't ready to push back on regulatory issues. They had organized before. It was They had a university-based research and standard-setting engineering program. They, they had no concept about getting involved with regulation or you know how to do this or how to uh, evaluate science. They had they know no concept of that. So they talked to me and essentially reached an agreement. And, and the question that I was asked when they hired me is, is the USGS right? Because if it was a harmful material that was uh, uh, harming the environment, creatures, people, just the ecosystem, that's not a business that anybody wants to be in. So Dr. Lahore examined each of those four different papers to try to figure out whether or not the USGS was correct when it said that coal tar sealant was creating a problem in the environment. 
She started with the 2005 study that sparked all of the rest of it. What the USGS did is they went out and they uh, applied RTS to some parking lots. And then they took a hose and they washed down the uh, parking lot and they took samples of what was running off the parking lot. Okay. And then rather than taking samples in the stream, um, they compared that to some other data. And they said, yes, by comparing it to this other data that was collected at another time for another purpose that at that time was unknown to us what it was, they, that's how they concluded, oh, look, it's the same RTS and this other data. But the environmental consultant who was there was that he had asked for this other data and he was handed a monitoring, a, a, a report that had been developed by the city of Austin that contained PAH data as part of their regular routine monitoring program. And the when he compared that to what was in the paper that was published, it didn't match. So as it happens, that particular paper was published in a scientific journal that is published by a group called the American Chemistry Society, which is where all chemists, you know, like the chemists in the world belong to ACS, in the United States at least. And they have an ethics committee. I wrote a letter to the ethics committee and I said, you know, gee, we haven't been able to reproduce this and we don't have the data and it's clearly not the data that we that we were led to believe that it was and as a result of that letter to the ethics committee we actually got a separate delivery from the usgs which included the data that they had used for comparison and that data consisted of data that they found in their files so to determine if coal tar sealant was causing an unsafe level of PAHs in the Austin area, Dr. Lahore tried to reproduce the results of the NACWA program's findings. But when she finally did get the data, it still didn't add up. It still wasn't reproducible. But what does that mean, really? Now, this is the key here. The key thing about science is it has to be reproducible because that's another way that science, that's how science progresses, is you assume something is published. And so you assume that it's reproducible if you're not reproducing it yourself. And you use that to build on that conclusion and to reach additional conclusions and make the, uh, the science go forward. And science, not just environmental science, but all of the sciences have for the last uh, decade and a half at least, um, been in a reproducibility crisis. Entire disciplines have been discovered to have been based on irreproducible studies that are irreproducible that were done back in the 50s. So, you know, billions and billions of dollars have been spent in, in you know, the century and a half since the uh, discipline was founded, all based on incorrect assumptions. I don't know if everyone had this thought, but when I was growing up and learned about the scientific method in science class, I thought the reproducible step was kind of like being forced to show your work on a simple addition problem. It seemed kind of dumb, but, uh, and quickly disabused me of that notion when she made an analogy to something she called cargo cults. Back in about, let's say 1970, there was a famous physicist and he gave a commencement address one time about cargo cult science. 
And, and I, I'm saying this to demonstrate how important reproducibility is. So you may have read about or heard about that in World War II in the Pacific uh, theater, the, uh, the war progressed through all of these islands in the South Pacific and armies on both sides and navies would show up on these islands and the people who lived there, many of them had never had any contact with the outside world. But what they saw was they saw planes landing and taking off and they saw parachutes coming down and they had all sorts of wonderful things and they had food, they had clothing, they had tools, they had fabulous knives that you could use. And then all of a sudden they were gone. So what anthropologists discovered after World War II is that all over the South Pacific, there were developed these things called cargo cults. It was a religious experience by these local people trying to bring back these planes that were delivering the cargo. And so what they did is they tried to reproduce what they saw that they thought this is how to get the planes come back. So they built runways and they built radio shacks and they sculpted people with headsets on to sit in the radio shacks. They did all of this and they didn't understand why the planes never came back. And that's an excellent illustration of the problem that you run into with science, that you only know what you can observe. You don't know what you don't know. And so the, one of the important things uh, about doing any kind of science is to show your work. And no matter how uh, trivial it, it may seem, there are so many degrees of freedom in any kind of uh, experiment that you need to describe as much as you can about how you did your work. So with that understanding of the importance of reproducibility, what Anne means when she says that USGS didn't make a reproducible study is that this isn't science. This is an assertion. And you may be right, but without a reproducible study, it's not proof. So that's the groundwork that was laid when Anne started filing FOIA requests. She started asking for all the data that backed up USGS claim that this coal tar sealant was actually creating high unsafe levels of PAHs in the Austin area. Part of the reason that I am very confident that the USGS in fact has been engaging in advocacy research is because we've got the data to prove it. And part of that came about as a result of the filing of, the, of that big Freedom of Information Act. Back, we filed it in 2011. More after the break. Hey y'all, I hope you're enjoying the show. I got involved with Open Records because of my time on the board with the Washington Coalition for Open Government. WashCog is an incredible organization. They only have one employee and a board of really active volunteers. If you could help support the mission of Washington Coalition for Open Government, I would really appreciate it. See a link in the podcast notes. So are they, the Freedom of Information Act asked for all the information and data that went into those papers. Since Anne has been hired, she's made a lot of FOIA requests to USGS, and she's gotten a lot of information. But the FOIA request at issue here was the first one she made. 
It was for the information and circumstances surrounding that 2005 study, the 2009 study, 2010 modeling paper, and the dust paper. These four studies were what was the backbone of the argument against coal tar sealant and were causing problems for the industry she represented. So we filed the, the FOIA in 2011 asking for the data from the 2005 paper, 2009, um, 2010 modeling paper, and the dust paper. I think the USGS, like I said, they're not a they're not a regulatory agency. They're not one that interacts with they they don't have a lot of experience at this kind of thing. Uh, our impression was that they didn't even have a FOIA officer who was on this at the time. Okay. Subsequently, I filed many different um, Freedom of Information Act with the USGS, and they did in fact appoint somebody to be a FOIA officer. But when we first started, they didn't. And they didn't seem to have any system of, you know, collecting the information or the data. We, we got, it was very, very spotty what we got. But over the next couple of years, they sent us just an enormous amount of paper. Uh, we had to pay, I think the, what they charged us, you know, how in, in the Federal Freedom of Information Act, you, you get charged, we had to pay up front. And the, the amount we had to pay was something like $28,000. So we had to pay that up front. <laughs> yes, it was, uh, it, it came as a surprise because this was the first one we found. And isn't that like, didn't you only get like 50,000 pages? Yeah, we got something like that, about 50,000 pages. Our problem was, what was the data that they were using for comparison? And what was the, uh, you know, the data, for example, when we got to the modeling study, they said in the paper that they published, that they did 200 what they called model runs, but they based their conclusions on four of them. And they didn't describe why those four, what those four, it gave the best result. Well, what does that mean, best result? Does that mean the result that you were looking for? Or does that mean you know it met some statistical criteria? What, what exactly does that mean? So we were really curious about the other 196 uh, model runs and what it is that they show. Um, and uh, the, the, the dust study, the problem with this is, you know, you want to be able to reproduce things. Some things, because when you're talking about environmental samples, it's not just, the samples just it doesn't exist in three dimensions. It just exists in at least four dimensions because time is always a factor. So if you collect a sample at, you know, point A on a map at, on a particular date and time, um, well, when you collected that, there could be, you know, maybe there was road construction going on over here, and maybe there was a forest fire over there. You, you don't know that if you, have, if, if you don't have the location data as well as the date. So that's essentially what we were looking for from the dust studies. We were looking for the location data. So Anne needed to know where the comparison content was coming from. She knew that they had done chemical analysis of two sets of data, one that was from that sprayed down RTS pavement, but the other she had no source for. So she needed to figure out where that came from and what could be contributing to the increased levels of PAH. Because there were 20, days, 20 data points, eight of which were from one location underneath a bridge or, or near an intersection of a busy roadway in Austin, Texas. 
and the other 12 of which were from a park in the center of Fort Worth, Texas, 200 miles away. So that gave us a pretty good indication that this was advocate. That's when I started using the words advocacy research, because clearly they looked in their files, they found things that sort of matched. And, uh, and so this, this is how they reached the conclusion. So in that first 2005 paper, the way they made the link between RTS and the PAHs that were in the sediment in the stream was by making a visual comparison by plotting it on a graph. So they plotted a graph and they said, here is the samples we collected from the parking lots. And here are these other 20 samples. And look, on this graph, they're very they're similar. So they must be the, so they must be the same. So what USGS was saying here is that because the graph of what the contents of the water in the test material showed was very similar to the contents in the water from the sprayed down RTS, then they must be showing RTS runoff in the environmental water. But the problem with that is that the runoff they're looking for, those PAHs, as Anne said earlier, come from a lot of different places, including toast or warm leaves. The only real distinction that can be made is between particles that come from petrogenic sources and other sources derived from combustible material. And that's pretty much it. In the environmental world, what you can distinguish readily are two types of PAHs. One that is called um, petrogenic PAHs, petros being the Latin word for rock. Okay, so, and, and the other is um, essentially those derived from, from petroleum, okay? PAHs derived from petroleum are clearly differentiated from those that are, that are developed from combustion. Anne made an analogy basically saying that what the data showed would be like going to a crime scene and finding a piece of evidence that told you the sex of the person you were looking for, and then saying that that was the same thing as having their fingerprints when you went to find and compare later with someone else. The fingerprints, they said they had fingerprints and that they matched, but that's a, a great analogy. Really what they were looking at is large populations or, you know, we, they, we identify the sex. It's, it's, it's not petrogenic. Um, it's, you know, the combustion um, sourced pyrogenics. What's that called? Pyro being fire. Pyrogenic PAHs from the combustion sources, which all tend to look alike. So we knew that, uh, you know, we, that, that became very clear um, and that was a problem. And in fact, I mentioned that there were four papers in, they published a paper in 2009 and they tried to use the same um, 20 samples essentially to broaden this out into uh, samples taken all over the US, nine different locations in the US. I think it was nine different locations in the US. And, and, it, and it didn't match. So that's why that, you know, just why is it they switched to this modeling mechanism for trying to make the match? Well, it was because this visual uh, method wasn't working and it didn't work in the, in the, in the very first place. And in fact, there was another study done 
by a fellow who worked for the city of Austin. And as part of their monitoring program, he went out and, uh, and, and took a bunch of samples around the city of Austin. He couldn't re reproduce it either. And he found no relationship between high pHs in their sediment and the location of parking lots, whether they were coated or not. You know? so, so he found no correlation, no um, nothing there. So Anne had fulfilled her mandate as to the first two studies to find out whether or not the USGS had gotten it right. Their first study in 2005 showed that they certainly hadn't done their work properly then, and then the 2009 study contradicted the 2005 study. So that left Anne with two more studies to evaluate. The modeling study and the, uh, and the dust study. Filed the FOIA in 2011. In 2014, the USGS said, we're done. We sent you 50,000 pages of paper, pieces of paper, and you know we're done. We're not going to send you anything else. We don't have the modeling and we don't have the location data. So in 2014, we filed the, the lawsuit. And um, so now everybody is very familiar at that time. She was a fairly new judge. She'd only been on the uh, DC circuit for about a year, uh, which was Katanji Brown-Jackson was assigned to us. And for the first couple of years, let's say 2014, 2015, um, the, the USGS and we, we tried to work it out that they would deliver us more data. So they delivered us yet more pieces of paper. And in actually this time, they actually came up with a Vaughn index. You might be wondering why they would file a lawsuit in 2014, but then let the USGS keep trying to work it out for another couple of years. You also might be wondering what a Vaughn index is. There's a couple weird procedural things in the FOIA litigation world that are relevant here. First, you have a three-year time limit for filing a new lawsuit over a FOIA request. So from the minute you get your answer to a FOIA request, you have three years to file suit. So they made the request in 2011, and they had to file by 2014. The other weird thing is the Vaughn index. A Vaughn index is based on a, a rule that you have to tell requesters why you are withholding certain information and reasonably describe the information being withheld so that they can argue whether or not the information is being rightly withheld. For example, if a person's social security number is included in a general document of government activity, they can redact that or black out that social security number, but they have to tell you what's behind the black ink, and that's the Vaughn Index. But they didn't disclose a Vaughn Index until after lawsuit was filed. This is crazy. <laughs> um, now, that was the first FOIA I had ever filed, so I didn't know what a Vaughn Index was, and uh, but I found out quickly, and somebody went in and actually said, okay, we're going to make a list of everything that we have, and we're going to, to explain what we are withholding and why. So yes, the Vaughn Index was, uh, there were a few surprises in the Vaughn Index. And after a couple of years of what they called, you know, supplementary uh, uh, deliveries, supplementary uh, responses that they gave us, uh, none of which included the data we were asking for. Um, 
again, the USGS said we're done and, and PCTC said we're done. Once the parties stop trying to negotiate an outcome in a lawsuit, it's time to start putting things in front of the judge. But you should really be careful what kind of stuff you put in front of the judge when you're arguing about keeping secrets from the public when you're a public agency. And we proceeded to start filing uh, briefs and so on and so forth. And let me tell you, I don't know too many. I have met in my life on a, an occasional Department of Justice lawyer, but perhaps you can tell me, how does a lawyer, Department of Justice or not, allow their client or their client's representative to include in one of their statements that the reason for not giving the data to PCTC was because we would only use it to criticize them. <laughs> Opening themselves up to criticism is not an exemption from the general rule of disclosure in FOIA. In fact, it's pretty much the whole reason for FOIA. So you tell me, I mean, I, 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 I looked at that when I first saw it and I said, oh my Lord, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and for good reason, we're not going to just randomly and for no reason criticize it because it deserves criticism, it deserves to be critiqued. But when the district court opinion came out, that admission didn't seem to matter. It didn't seem to change the outcome at all. And the opinion was 100% for the USGS. They found completely for them. And our uh, membership of PCTC didn't feel as though we had any choice, uh, that, you know, that couldn't live with the result. And we didn't feel like it was a just result. And so, uh, so the decision was to, at first, to talk to people about who knew something about FOIA law and about appeals to go ahead and uh, do the appeal. And as a result of, of, of talking with many people, we uh, settled on Larry Abner, uh, you know Larry, to be our APLA lawyer. And he is a brilliant man, you know, and seems to be a very fine lawyer. In addition to running his own appellate practice, Larry is also general counsel to an organization called Atlantic Legal Foundation, where I interned in law school. Atlantic Legal Foundation is a nonpartisan group that is dedicated to advocating for sound science in courtroom decisions. So Larry was a really good choice for this case where the science underlying a government agency's decision-making was at issue. So he took on our case and on his recommendation, we cut down to its essence. And Larry said, well, from talking to you, what I'm hearing is you really want the data. So let's focus on the data. As a refresher, they had asked for a lot of things besides the underlying data, like communications within the agency. And they did get some of that, but by the time they got to the appeal, what they were really looking for was the data. And um, the result of the appeal was to completely overturn the, the decision to not give us the, the modeling data. So that has been delivered to us. Uh, somebody warned me when we first started this that you get, you never are satisfied with what you get. You don't know what you're going to get and you're never satisfied with it because it's not going to be what you think. The, the USGS was required to 
well, they, the decision that they reached was not to appeal it to the Supreme Court, um, although they actually did threaten to do that, but we kind of called their bluff and they said, ah, no, we're not gonna do that. So we have the, uh, what they're calling the modeling data, lots and lots of data, lots of numbers on spreadsheets. And, uh, but the second part of the opinion, of course, was as a result of the personal uh, information um, laws that are on the books and very well respected. So the second part was essentially to uphold the part of the opinion that didn't give us the location data because these dust samples were actually collected in people's homes. So they didn't want to give us the locations of those homes. We're very happy to get the modeling data and we're actually in the midst of working that up right now. We're trying to reverse engineer it, put it through the models. I believe that we only got the data for one model. According to the Vaughn index, they had used at least two others. I don't think we got the data um, or the output from those models. And the, and the reason of course, to ask for the actual model inputs is because uh, the age old phrase, garbage in, garbage out. Um, so the data are more than just, uh, you, you have these chemical results. How did you configure those results to put them in the model to, uh, to reach, to get the output that you got? And then why did you choose those, uh, those four out of the 200 outputs? Why did you choose those four? So we have somebody, you know, we're working on those right now, like I said, there's lots and lots of data. And um, we have some, you know, preliminary thoughts on, or some preliminary views into what uh, may have been, you know, how that works, but I'm not, uh, I'm not able yet to say how that's working out. But based on what I, we know to be the case from other work that's come out of this group, I think that it's safe to, describe the overall effort by these particular USGS people as uh, advocacy research. From her perspective as a scientist, getting the opinion that Judge now Justice Jackson issued overturned was more than just relevant for the people that had hired her. It was important to make sure that government science generally was still treated like all the rest of the sciences. If that decision of Judge Jackson had stood, it would have given carte blanche to, to scientists of any agency who work for the United States government to hide their data, which is a privilege that no other scientist on earth working for any organization whatsoever has. So there you have it. Government scientists have to disclose their underlying data, just like everyone else, and sometimes they get it wrong, for whatever reason. So if you're wondering why uh, the health agency in your area has made a certain decision, or how they came to a conclusion that path X was safer than path Y, why not make a FOIA request? See what you can find out, and then tell me about it. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Revealed, putting public records in the public eye. See you soon.